Welcome to Naturistic, a biology podcast focused on ecology, evolution, plants, and animals. I'm Nash Churley, a biologist, and each episode I research a specific subject and present what I've learned to my co-host, Hamilton Boyce. This episode we discuss bald eagles. Hello, Hamilton. Hello, Nash Turley, PhD. From the great state of California? Yes. And I'm Florida. I don't know if we mentioned that before. We are going bi-coastal on this. Yeah, we're going southernmost states of each coast. Uh, yeah, very accurate. Contiguous, that is. <laughs> I remember as a kid, I went to Hawaii, and, and the, the fact that Hawaii was the southernmost state was just somehow one of my most favorite facts. <laughs> oh man, easy to please. <laughs> I, 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 so when I, when I was a kid and I went to Hawaii, I was such an animal nerd that I, you know, I missed a few days of school. And when I went back to school, I, I made a quiz of all the cool animal facts I learned, <laughs> like the, the, the smallest bird and the largest mammal and the largest whale, like in the fastest animal, like the biggest and fastest and smallest. And I brought it to school and gave it to the teacher and printed it out so I could give to the other students. And then they all took it. That is uh, awesome. <laughs> were they like, this is sick? Or were they like, what, whatever nerd? I really don't remember. I don't, <laughs> like, don't, don't know, remember don't any, care. any reaction. One way or the other. <laughs> right. Um, so anyone that heard the last episode may have heard the sweet music that was on the introduction and break and outro. So that was Hamilton's work. I asked him to make some music and he uh, pulled through in flying colors. Thank you. That was fun. I was saying it had kind of a, a, a moody safari adventure vibe, which I think is uh, sort of appropriate. Totally. That's my, that's my space. That's my thing. <laughs> Is that going to be the the theme for your next full musical endeavor is Moody Safari? Yeah, it's going to be a stage play. Um, Anyway, I'll tell you more about it later. (laughs) Multimedia experience. Right. Uh, I hope holograms are involved. Yeah, I'm assuming the technology should catch up to my ideas, at least hopefully (laughs) by the time I'm ready with the first draft. So I'm sure there's been some holographic bald eagles in the world before. Hmm, I bet, yeah. If you're going to make a hologram, Bald Eagle would definitely be top three first things after Tupac. (laughs) Yeah, that was my attempt at a transition to Bald Eagle. So that's the topic for today. Everyone, I think, in the U.S. at least, probably knows or thinks they know what a Bald Eagle looks like. So what would you describe the appearance of a Bald Eagle as? I would describe a Bald Eagle as a large bird a bird of prey, um, mm-hmm. big old body. Um, mm-hmm. They are black or very dark brown with a white, bald, not really bald, but white head. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. They got a big uh, kind of yellow-orange fish-eating beak, um, big wingspan, uh-huh. aggressive claws that you don't want to mess with. Yeah. I would say, yeah, yellow, big yellow beak, and I would add white tail to that, white head and white tail. White tail, right, yeah. And the the wingspan's up to about six and a half feet. That is massive. Most people, if you stretch your arms out, it's bigger than that. That's the wingspan. The wingspan, yeah. yeah. And they're, being that big, they, they still weigh about nine pounds. So I know when I first learned that fact, that could have been one of the facts on my, my school quiz. I don't know, but... <laughs> It it's not maybe as much as you'd think given how big they are. Yeah, nine pounds. So like about the weight of a you know gallon of water. Wild. Uh, so you know bird style, hollow bones, all that. So mm. th- they're they're keeping it pretty light. Yeah. And not all of them have that look that you described because the juveniles are more brown and can be kind of speckled. Right. And it can take them up to four to five years to get the full adult black and white plumage four years yeah wow okay so if you're out there looking at bald eagles you know you'll see the the juveniles quite a bit and yeah. i think a lot of people might not realize that they're bald eagles they would just be like well that's a you know a, a vulture or a, a golden eagle or something yeah 
Yeah, I've seen the juveniles a decent amount, but I didn't realize how long they kept that juvenile plumage. Yeah, a lot of big raptors take a while to get. I mean, smaller birds, it's normally only the first season that they have juvenile plumage, but right. big birds, raptors, and gulls and things like that can take a few years. Wild. And it makes sense. I mean, they have a pretty long lifespan. They can live, often live pretty typically about 20 years. Yeah. So the uh, scientific name for bald eagles is a mouthful. I'm actually going to open this link and listen to it again. Okay. Haliidus leucocephalus is how the robot pronounces it. So I'm <laughs> going to assume that's pretty right. And so that name is uh, Haliidus means sea eagle in Latin or Greek, one or the other. Yeah. And and actually, I thought I had a note of what leucocephalus mean, but I don't see it here. I, I think it means white head or something, something very on point. Okay. not It's not an STI. <laughs> an STI? The modern name for STDs. Oh, right. It, it sounds like one, sure. Man, I, I'm sorry to tell you, I've got leucocephalus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like when you have too much patriotism. <laughs> Yeah, so the bald eagles are the national bird of the U.S. And one founding figure of the U.S., Benjamin Franklin, was not too excited about that. He pushed really hard for the national bird to be the wild turkey. Yeah. A quote from him, he says, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen the representative of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. <laughs> so I think he saw turkeys, you know, they live in these social groups and they're mostly herbivorous. And I guess he, he saw them as more family friendly bird, I guess. And vultures do have some slightly shady habits, which we'll see. Or I mean, uh, bald eagles. So I, I think he, he was a naturalist. He knew what he was talking about. Yeah, I am totally in the Ben Frank camp there on that, on that decision or that uh, opinion. Oh, you'd go turkey over bald eagle? Yeah, definitely. Huh. I mean, I loved eagles as a kid, so yeah. I think my gut thinks that bald eagle's a pretty good choice. Yeah. But, I mean, I think his his uh, his logic of, like, based on their behavior, right. uh, you know, it's reasonable. Yeah. And so bald eagles are found, they're very American bird. They're basically found in the continental U.S., in Canada, and Alaska, and that's it. Tiny bit of Mexico. Okay. But the, their range is really appropriate for the national bird of the U.S. because they're found pretty much everywhere. Turkey may have a little not so great on that. They are pretty widespread, but they'd be kind of leaving out, you know, the south southwest. Right. What about the song sparrow? Ooh, yeah, that that would be a good one. You know, we're probably going to do an episode on song sparrows. All um, right. No more no more said then. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 had we were in a band called Song Sparrow Research and we both uh worked on, well, as the band name suggests, <laughs> we both worked on research related to song sparrows and they got a ton of cool behavior so we'll we'll revisit that one cool probably not next maybe mix up yeah bird to bird but we don't want to just immediately get into a bird trap <laughs> yeah they're found throughout north america they they do migrate although not all of them migrate but some of them will migrate from like um, the coast up into like the ones that are in canada are pretty much only there in the summer so some populations are migratory some here in florida they're here year-round mm-hmm they don't go to Cuba for the winter? No, I I didn't see any in the Caribbean on the map or South America, just a tiny bit into coastal Mexico. It's about as far south as they go. Cool. So there's an extremely common misconception about bald eagles, and that's the sound they make. What would you, what comes to mind when you think of the sound that a bald eagle makes? <laughs> well, I know what they sound like. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, so if you want me to guess what I think other people will think they sound like, it's probably something like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's, let's listen to the sound of a red tail hawk. Is that is that the sound you were thinking that, that most people probably thought? Yeah, totally. That like piercing kind of scream? Yeah. The Hollywood bald eagle call that echoes through the western canyons. Yeah, there's there's sort of two issues with that. One is that like bald eagles aren't super common in like arid desert regions because they mostly feed on fish. Right. And two is that when they 
they'll show a bald eagle and play that call, but that call is a red tail hawk. And so like I, I'm the one, the one I always thought of was on the Colbert rapport when he had the animated bald eagle that flew in. Right. Of course, of course it played the red tail hawk sound. Right. So let's listen to the actual call that bald eagles make. So not not nearly as intimidating, eh? Yeah. It's kind of like a bad singer almost. <laughs> sort of sort of musical. It doesn't have really solid pitch. It kind of trails right, off. Right, yeah. It's very interesting. I've never heard it like this feels like a kind of a close a close recording almost. Close mic'd. It's not a sound that projects very well. Right. So like when I've heard it it feels like it always feels kind of distant. Where the red tail hawk sound like really pierces and you can hear it. Yeah. The eagle sound, I think it normally sounds even more thin than that when totally. you hear it in the wild. Yeah. It's just kind of like this almost like squeaking sound. Mm-hmm. It's not a sound you, you know, associate with a big bird nest even. Also, that was Alaska. I don't know if there's any, there's a British Columbia one. I don't know if that's going to be different. I mean, that was the sound that I was expecting pretty much, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's if there's much variation it's seven seconds let's take let's take a listen yeah that's pretty different yeah it's kind of more like a a lower not so much the squeaky trilly thing yeah more like a seagull which is kind of like i've definitely been with people who hear that sound and go oh seagulls and i'm like no that's a bald eagle bro yeah here in florida um osprey are incredibly common and they make a similar sound as well and they they live in such similar habitats too so that's a tricky one right so when i was a kid i one of the reasons i was a fan of bald eagles i lived in the skagit valley in washington state is this huge wild river that had massive salmon runs every fall and spring and the eagles would congregate uh, and catch well sometimes they catch the salmon other times they're just scavenging on the dead carcasses but the sides of the river the trees would just be lined with bald eagles and the the main road to go into the town i lived in which was called cedro woolly pretty sweet town name yeah it's a good place there right on the side on the side of the road like just above the the bridge there was this bald eagle nest that was probably five or six feet deep it was massive hmm. uh like i you could Almost certainly, at least definitely as a kid, like crawl in it and live up there. So I used to just sort of like fantasize about having my own, you know, raptor made tree fort that I could climb into. <laughs> did you ever, uh, did you ever go up there? <laughs> Unfortunately not. I mean, it was way up in the air. Yeah. One of the reasons that the nests get so big is they mate for life and they'll go back to the same nest year after year and just keep adding to it. Mm. So it's this, you know, cup-shaped. I mean, it's got a similar style to a small, you know, songbird nest. It's just massive. Right. And it's this cup made of big sticks. And it's the bald eagles actually have the world record for the largest at least aerial bird nest. So in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida in 1963, they found a bald eagle nest that was 9 feet wide weighed 4,400 pounds. So it's like a minivan up in the tree. Damn. That <laughs> yeah. is massive. Yeah. I, I didn't know that fact. I Of, of all the like biggest animal facts, I, I thought I would have known that one, but I, I didn't know. I do remember um, on a similar vehicular kind of uh, analogy at the Woodland Park Zoo, they have eagles there, bald eagles. And they have, yeah. uh, at least when I was a kid or the last time I was there or whatever, they had a there's a net there were nesting eagles so they have that giant nest there and they related the weight of the nest to that of a Volkswagen Beetle okay which that that stat always stuck with me I was like a Volkswagen so every time I see a bald eagle nest I look up in the tree and I'm like okay so there's a equivalent of like a Volkswagen Beetle weight sitting in that branch up there yeah nice yeah so that's maybe a, a- a more typical nest size. Not a not a world record breaker. <laughs> world record one, yeah. Yeah. We mentioned their feeding habits a little bit. So I want to go into a study that specifically focused on understanding their feeding behavior. Cool. So this was in Maine, the great state of Maine. Have you ever been to Maine? No, actually, I was just talking about how Maine is one of the handful of states that I have not been to. 
because it's nice. you know it's out of the way enough that you gotta ha- kind of have a reason to be going there. You don't just like pass through <laughs> yeah. Maine. Yeah, my grandma had a cabin there, so we went there a couple times when I was a kid. But it was very much like a family trip where you just like go from the airport to a house and then that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you so. watch uh, daytime television for seven days straight. <laughs> well, I don't even know if there was TV at the cabin. Um, so we actually went like, you know, mostly just spent a lot of time swimming and fishing and stuff. Oh, that sounds good. And there was lots of loons on the lake. I don't remember seeing any eagles, but, but yeah, so this study in Maine, it's not an experiment. It's a, it's an observational study. And so what they wanted to do was understand what they're eating and then also what they're eating in different habitat types. So they looked at um, eagles that lived on the coast, like the ocean coast, and ones that live inland, uh, but were still going to be around lakes and rivers and things. Uh, and what they did is they, the main data they collected was from, or this is a quote from the paper, we collected food remains from nests and at the base of nest or perch trees. So basically eagles are flying, catching food, and they're bringing it back to their nest or a tree, and then they're ripping it apart and like chunks fall down to the ground. Mm-hmm. And these researchers are like scrounging through it <laughs> and trying to figure out what animals the eagle is eating. Right. Uh, so yeah, so that was off the ground and up in the nest. And then they also watched their feeding behavior. So they spent 160 hours watching eagle behavior and quantifying what they're, what they're catching and mm-hmm. eating. So the main result was that the inland populations, their diet was about three quarters fish. And the coastal populations was about three quarters seabirds. Wow. And so I, you know, I knew that eagles ate fish. I've seen them catch fish. I had no idea. I don't even think I knew that they ate birds, but when they're out on the ocean, I guess fish are harder to catch or there's more ducks. So they're mostly eating ducks and gulls. Wow. That's hardcore. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I had no idea that. I mean, yeah, I I was aware that they ate birds. Like I thought it was like kind of a a rare, like a special occasion if they're eating birds, but three quarters of their, of the coastal population's diet are, are birds. Yeah. Wow. And, and one I thought was pretty weird fact about the their fish diet it was bullhead and white sucker which are both bottom fish so they're somehow catching bottom fish they said they think they mostly catch fish in shallow water mm-hmm. so i guess that's when the bottom fish are sort of coming up to shallow water but do they live in rivers like do they travel from rivers to lakes or anything like that or well, they hunt they definitely hunt in both yeah. i would guess especially in in maine they're probably hunting in lakes. And these fish, I believe, are mostly lake fish, mm-hmm. the bullhead and sucker and pickerel, which is another, this like long, skinny predatory fish. And actually, that's funny. Now that I think about it, I caught a pickerel when I was in Maine huh. and made that connection. And there was a bald eagle and a branch staring at you going, you <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> I let it go too. I mean, I, I caught and released, so maybe I think cotton release fish don't often do that well. So right. I've, I've actually been fishing and seen an eagle, like people catching and release and they release a fish and then an eagle comes down and get it, gets it. <laughs> well, could be worse. Keeping it in the food chain. Yeah. So the eagles in both habitats had a small percentage of their diet that was mammals as well. So uh, mostly rabbits and squirrels and things like that. Mm. Small children. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm trying to remember. I, there was a video of a kid being attacked by an eagle, but I think it was faked. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a viral video. Wow. And there was also, they, they they measured one eagle that caught a vole, which is like, you know, basically like the size of a house mouse. Right. So <laughs> at some point, somehow an eagle caught a tiny little vole. That's cool. Just, just like kind of a slow day. Like, yeah, I guess I'll see what's up with this vole. <laughs> yeah. So one of the consequences of that, the different feeding habits in the coast, in the inland, is that the coastal ones are feeding higher in the trophic level. Basically, other birds are also predators, so they're higher in the food chain. And so if the eagles are feeding on other animals that are higher in the food chain, that could be one reason why coastal birds tend to have higher levels of contaminants mm-hmm. in their system. You know, well, We're going to talk about those in a bit, but PCBs and lead and stuff. Mm -hmm. And in the study, they actually found uh, there were a couple eagles they were following that died of lead poisoning because they ate ducks that had been shot by hunters that had like a couple lead pellets in them. And then the eagles ate them and then died. Man, bummer. Not a fun way to go. No. And that's actually a a really big threat to a lot of scavengers. So that's like the um, California condor, super endangered bird. That's 
the main, one of their biggest threats to them is that lead shot left in various animal carcasses, they then eat it, lead poisoning. Yeah. Man, is lead, can you still purchase lead shot like in 2020? Um, I just saw some regulations about that. I, I believe it was temporarily banned to use lead shot in um, national forest and mm-hmm. national land. But I thought I saw something that that was like overturned recently. But yeah, you can still buy it. There tends to be restrictions on it, but you know, it's still out there. Yeah, wild. And uh, in this study, they also found that um, some of them were scavenging on deer and moose and dead cattle and even beaver carcasses. There's a, a pretty funny sentence in there in the paper. It says, winter starved deer and those struck by trains were important diet supplements during the early nesting season. Hmm. <laughs> so it's like an, like the connection between trains and bald eagles right. through killing deer. <laughs> wouldn't, have, wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, Franklin didn't much like the eagles because he knew they were scavengers. Right. And I, I had a, a guy I worked with who lived in uh, Alaska for a while, where eagle bald eagles are super common up there. And he always he didn't ever look at bald eagles with any reverence because up there, bald eagles are just uh, at the landfills by like the hundreds. You'll mm-hmm. just go to the garbage dump, and there's just like two hundred bald eagles scavenging off a of trash. Right, <laughs> doesn't quite like make him seem an elegant symbol. Totally. Like the roadkill on the in the landfill diet, it's yeah, like the glorious symbol of America, <laughs> yeah. And th- they will congregate. So this study found them congregating in the estuaries, and they were uh, feeding on uh, fish as they were migrating up and down the rivers. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this, I I learned a new word. In this, so uh, have you heard of anadromous fish? No. So anadromous fish, that, that word I knew, so that, that word is like salmon or anadromous, which means they're born in freshwater and then they migrate out to the ocean. They live out there. They live most of their life in the ocean several years, and then they come back to freshwater to, to breed. Okay. So that's anadromous. Huh. But in this paper, they showed that the eagles were feeding on alewives, which is a type of fish that's anadromous, but they're also feeding on American eels, which is a fish that's catadromous, which means it's the opposite. They're born in the ocean. They swim around in the ocean for a little bit and then come back to freshwater and live most of their life in freshwater. Yeah. So it's the opposite. Like a cat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure that's how they got the name. <laughs> uh, so I think in both cases, the eagles are feeding on them as they're kind of going through the narrow transition between salt and freshwater. Right. And these American eels are crazy. I never heard of them. So they used to breed in rivers all across the East Coast. They're pretty rare now because they were, you know, damming and pollution and, and also harvesting them. Uh, but they, yeah, they, they migrate all the way out. They all congregate like off the coast of Florida. There's like this big region where they all kind of congregate. Hmm. And then after that, they all find their way as tiny, tiny little fish back into the estuaries. Hmm. And they also saw eagles um, feeding on a group of squid, which I think was a pretty unique uh, sighting for them. And yeah. They were all these group of eagles were so into the squid they were like submerging themselves to try to grab them. <laughs> wow, the delicacy, eagle delicacy. Yeah, most of the time when eagles forage, they'll they'll never like plunge into the water. I don't know if you've ever seen them catch a fish, but they like they fly down and it's very elegant. They just kind of like plunge their talons into the water and pull out a fish and like all on all on the wing. Yeah, totally. Uh, and that's normally what they do, but sometimes they'll plunge and fall into the water. Uh, if it's like a really big fish or they're trying to get deeper to catch something. So they're not opposed to getting wet. And there's uh, sometimes there's several videos I've seen of eagles that are swimming. So they're like basically swimming back to shore because they can't take off. And uh, one video I saw, I had this giant, giant salmon in its claws and it was like, like struggling to pull it back to the shore. (laughs) Wild. And there's a, I guess it's an urban legend of, of sorts that they get their claws stuck in the fish. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's not true at all. They just don't want to let go. And they're right. like, well, I can, I can swim this back to shore. Yeah, <laughs> Why totally. should I let this go? If it's, but it's a fish that's probably too big for them to take off with. Yeah, totally. And if it's that big, then why would they let it go? The the last feeding behavior is called kleptoparasitism. You ever heard of that? Ooh, this sounds very familiar, but I'm not going to try to guess the... I mean, there's 
something about stealing, but go ahead and just tell me what it is. Yeah, kleptoparasitism. So it's that they steal food from other animals, other birds mostly. Yeah. So in this case, they, you know, an osprey will go catch a fish and then the eagle will just like harass it and chase it down until it lets it go and <laughs> then just take it for itself. Wild. And that's, uh, so they'll do that with osprey and gulls and even mergansers, which is this duck that catches fish. We all know, we all know mergansers, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to live in a world where everyone knew mergansers. <laughs> Uh, I one time saw a merganser swimming and some, a lot of birds swim just with their feet. So like, uh, cormorants and things, they pull their wings in and just paddle with their feet, but mergansers swim with their wings. So they're like flying underwater. And I was in, uh, on a rock looking over this clear mountain lake. And then this merganser just swam by underneath me. And it was one of the most cool things I've ever seen. That's awesome. Like you just look down into the water and just see it swimming by. Well, I, I walked up to the rock and it was sort of like the duck was inland on the surface and then I scared it. And the only way it could swim away was sort of by me. Yeah. And it just kind of swam by. That's cool. Yeah. Swimming birds. You're like, dude, this is not your intended purpose. We <laughs> gave you wings. <laughs> yeah. I think all, I often think of like the, the video game where you can like choose the powers of your character right? and you can choose like power or strength or speed or whatever. Right. But you only have like so many points to distribute among, among the different categories. Yeah. So some of the birds seem like they sort of cheat that a little bit, but because they can fly and they can swim, but normally those birds are also really bad on land. Right. So right. They, there's a trade off somewhere. Yeah. If you've ever seen it, like a, amazing swimmers are, um, loons and they're pretty good flyers too mm -hmm. and they're so horrible at walking on land because their feet they, they swim with their feet right and so their feet are like on they're like you know they're like a propeller at the back of their body right so when they walk they're like leaning way back so they can get balance they basically can't walk it's crazy <laughs> <laughs> nice i have never seen a loon on land yeah where do I've... i go to find a loon on land <laughs> well they all they only come on land when they're nesting and okay. they pick very secluded nesting spots. Yeah. So very hard to see. Right. Um, and often on like islands or floating bogs and stuff. So right. I've only seen footage of it. Okay, word. Maybe let's take a quick break and I'll come back and talk about nest selection cool. right after this. All right, welcome back. So we are about to talk about a study on nest selection. So this is kind of their bald eagle behavior and where they choose to nest, what type of habitat and why. And this is a really common thing in wildlife biology because if you want to protect rare or threatened species, you need to really know, you know what type of habitat they're going to breed in. Totally. And uh, so this study took place in Chesapeake Bay, Maryland which I learned is the largest estuary in the United States oh. and perhaps one of the best uh, bald eagle habitats in the continental U.S. as well because nice. it's this massive, really productive estuary. And for the listeners, an estuary is... Um, basically like an area where salt water and fresh water mix. Right on. <laughs> so it's like, uh, I feel like I've seen them as where like a river leads into kind of a big tidal flat area. Is that, does that sound like? Yep. Yeah. It's like a delta meets, or I don't know, is it delta? Yeah. A, a delta would be a type of estuary. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's such a big estuary because it's a big river that goes into a large um, harbor, cove. So there's enough fresh water coming in that that whole cove ends up being brackish, it's called, which is like somewhere between freshwater and saltwater, mm -hmm. depending on the tide. Right. And those habitats tend to be very, very productive for lots of sea life for whatever reason. Right. You have the and something and the cat something. <laughs> the anadromous and the catadromous fish coming in and out. Exactly. Sure, that's part of it. And then, you know, I, Chesapeake Bay is well known for... Um, what are those shellfish that people eat to get horny? Um, They're used on guitars for the inlays. Oh, uh, clams? <laughs> Mussels? Um, uh, oysters. Scal oysters. Oysters. Yeah, oysters. They're a big uh, indigenous populations uh, fed on oysters there for obviously a very long time. And there are these huge 
now I forget what they're called, but they're these giant mounds where indigenous populations would pile up oyster shells for centuries. Hmm. And they like totally different ecology. They basically like created an entire new habitat with these big oyster mounds. Oh, cool. And yeah, and then there's like um, seabeds that have uh, seagrass, which are a really important ecosystem for lots of sea animals and stuff. So in this study, what they did is they they took the the area all surrounding Chesapeake Bay uh, that was all that they categorized as possible bald eagle nesting sites, and um, they found thirty nest sites and they collect data on those sites, and then they also so compared that to one hundred and thirty nine randomly selected sites within that region. Okay. So so the reason for doing that is like if you want to know. If you only look at the places where bald eagles nest, you could say like, well, all of these are, you know, say they're in areas with big trees or they're close to water, but you can't make a strong case that, you know, maybe that's the only habitat that's around because you need something to compare it to. Like, is it more close to water than average um, or is it taller trees than you would expect by chance? So to answer that question, you have to compare the actual nest sites to a bunch of just randomly selected sites. And they, they did that, actually. I mean, it's a pretty old-school study. I think it came out in the 80s. So they actually had a map, a paper map of the region, and then they put a, a grid paper over the map and then called out random numbers and then plotted them <laughs> on the map. Uh, and then they used that to select the random locations. And then they'd go to those locations um, and e at each site, they would measure, um, it's called the diameter at breast height. It's a common forestry measurement of the trees. Um, they'd measure the density of all the trees and, and um, the distance to water, the distance to a road, the distance to um, a human shelter, things like that. At each location, they would have 50 meter, four 50 meter transects and then collect a ton of data. And so the goal was to understand the local habitat, especially the trees, and then the regional habitat, like like I said, the especially related to human activity, the roads and mm -hmm. buildings and stuff. And there's a tool they use, which is I really like the forestry tools because they're often really lo-fi and elegant and simple. Right. And one of them they use was called a Haga altimeter. So imagine like a aluminum pistol. It's got like a pistol grip. It's about the size of a pistol, but like shiny aluminum. Mm -hmm. And it's a a mechanical tool that allows you to measure the height of a tree. And so it has settings on it where you set it to how far away you are from the tree. Right. So it's like a, you measure 30 meters from the tree and mm -hmm. then you set the tool to 30 meters. And then it has a little eyesight, like, like you're looking down the sights of a gun yeah. and you, you eye it to the top of the tree and then you press a little trigger. And then based on the angle, it, you hit the little trigger and it locks it. And then it just reads out the height based on, you know, trigonometry built into the mechanism of the little tool. It's really cool. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Guess how much it cost? Uh, $50,000. <laughs> <laughs> is that a, is that your real guess or is that uh, no, purely my joke real guess? guess is uh, $80. Uh, almost $500. Oh, okay. <laughs> so these elegant tools that are made by these like Companies that market only to scientists tend to make that stuff really expensive. But I'm also sure it's really nice and would probably last forever. So right. And I it probably, I kind of want one. <laughs> get one. I mean, otherwise, how tall are you? Like, how are you going to know how tall trees are? I know. I mean, I, they have digital versions of that now, I think, but yeah. the mechanical ones just seem so much cooler. Totally. You're like, there's an app for your iPhone and it costs $1 and it's way more accurate, but. <laughs> <laughs> I need my paper to have the word Haga altimeter in it just yeah. for a cool factor. Totally. Uh, there's another forestry tool that I've used called a, a densiometer, which is this really cool spherical mirror. And they use this in the study too, where it's a mirror with a grid on it. And then you hold it out and then you count, it like reflects up at the, the tree canopy. And that's a way of measuring how densely covered the tree canopy is. Uh -huh. it's, it's really cool. They're also like $200. <laughs> is a spherical mirror not just a disco ball? Um, it's got it. Yeah, it's disco ball like. Okay. I mean, it's not a it's not actually a sphere. It's like a it's a it's a little wooden box and it's just a a section of a sphere. Okay. So it's like yeah, it's just a the top it's like the if you cut off the very top of a disco ball and put it in a really classy wooden box. Yeah. There you go. Nice. <laughs> 
Sounds cool. Yeah. So uh, the main result they found is that the eagles, compared to the random sites, the eagles preferred to be farther away from people and in areas with a more open canopy and closer to water. Okay. So the, the nest sites had an average distance to a paved road of 900 meters, where the random sites had about 500 meters. Okay. So that's that's basically how you, that's the way you, the data you really need to test the questions of their their uh, nest preference. Yeah, totally. Do they know that humans are really bad at coming up with random numbers? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, like humans, if you try to if you try to come up with a random number, you like want it to be different. So you're like one, ninety nine, oh. fifty. Like you say stuff. Like, I see. Whereas yeah. actual random numbers have more like you know repetition and patterns and stuff because like you purposefully avoid those when you're coming up with random numbers because you think like well that's not random yeah exactly right yeah i think there are study designs that distinctly don't use random they use like maximizing the variation which is not random right but if you have smaller sample sizes that's sometimes what you want to do if they did that random sampling enough by chance they could get a bunch of plots that are like all near roads or something right but they did a lot of them and so that's the hope is like if you truly make it random that it's you know it's not biasing towards one type of habitat over the other right totally. but you're exactly right yeah you need to actually make it random not just what looks random in our brain because random in our brain is like perfectly spread out which is not random at all totally uh, so like yeah distance to water they found that the eagles were about 600 meters from water and the random points were 1200 meters so it's not too surprising they eat fish so they want to nest close to the water. Yeah. It sounds like their nesting preferences similar to like an excellent place to build like a lake home or something. Like you don't want it too close to other people. You want it to, you know, you'd be close to the water. You don't want like full tree canopy coverage because then you're just in the shade, right? You want some trees. You want it to be by the water. You want it to be kind of secluded. You're right. And the biggest threat to the eagles in this area um seems to be habitat loss because people want to build homes in the place where they like the nest. There you go. Yeah. So um, they suggest that having like one of the management implications of the study is that having like buffer zones around their nesting areas of like trees might be a good idea. Mm -hmm. So like if they're nesting over there and there's a road, maybe put a line of trees. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is in Maryland and in most places, a lot of those nesting habitats are on private land. They're not, you know, parks or whatever. So it can be a challenge to um, manage and protect that land in a way that's good for eagle nesting habitat because, as you pointed out, it's habitat that humans are likely to be also quite fond of. Totally. Conflict of interest. Yeah. How patriotic are you really, though? (laughs) Right. Are you going to give up your sweet house for an eagle nest? Yeah. Um, So I think talking about the threats to bald eagles leads into the next topic, which is their massive decline that occurred because of DDT. And however, the whole story about bald eagles is actually a great success story, which is nice to talk about because those don't actually happen very often when it comes to, you know, threatened threatened and endangered species. Totally. It's like it's usually like, and now they're extinct. Right. So yeah, the the success stories are rare, but it is good to know about them because it's an example, you know, it shows what we can do if mm-hmm. we choose to care. Right. In the 1960s, bald eagles were very much on the road to extinction. They had gone down to only having 400 mating pairs in the U.S. So crazy. Where there were probably hundreds of thousands a century before. Yeah. And so eventually we learned that that uh, crash was primarily due to the insecticide DDT and the various compounds that it breaks down into once it reaches nature. So DDT started getting used after World War II, and over the next 20, 30 years, 1.3 billion pounds of DDT were sprayed on the U.S. And so that's about the weight as 1,600 fully loaded 747 jets landing across the U.S., like fully loaded with people and humans, people and humans, (laughs) cargo and gas and everything. So imagine like over 30 years you know, 1,600 planes crashing down full of toxic chemicals. Yeah, that is unsavory. 
it was a very, very popular insecticide. And the big problem with that insecticide is it accumulates in the food chain. So have you, had you heard of that or is that a concept you're familiar with? Yeah. How would you explain that? Yeah. So my understanding is basically the first level is, you know, something, it, it gets into the soil and then like, and then it gets soaked up into a plant. And then there's the first level of, you know, maybe an insect that eats the plant and then the kind of the concentration gets built up in that mm-hmm. insect because it's eating plants its whole life. And then an animal eats that, and then it's built up in that next animal that eats it. So each level up the food train, it kind of becomes more condensed or more like concentrated. Exactly. Yeah. And so a lot of chemicals in nature break down fairly quickly and they'll never accumulate that way. But DDT lasts a really long time and it, you know, it'll become more and more concentrated as you go up the food chain. So it get into an insect and then a fish and then into eagles. And because eagles are eating fairly high in the food chain, it really accumulates in them. Right. And it, it's particularly problematic for birds because it messes with the chemistry of their eggs and makes them really thin. Mm. So thin that when the birds try to incubate their own eggs by sitting on them, they just crush them. Oh man, that is tragic. Yeah. So it's, it's really rough on birds. And so this was starting to be learned. And in 1962, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, which talked a lot about that and the decline of birds and insects. And so that really kicked off the environmental movement Mm -hmm. in the U.S. It's amazing how recent all this stuff is. It's like the idea of environmentalism started in 1962. So crazy. Yeah. Um, And a decade later, uh, DDT was banned. The EPA was formed in that time and banned mostly, not entirely, but large-scale use of DDT was ended by 1973. Yeah. And after that point, it wasn't until 1978 where bald eagles were put officially on the Endangered Species Act. Um, and, of course, it didn't exist before that. So they were they were pretty early yeah. on that. So that's the, that's the grim side of it. But after DDT was banned, there was some really dramatic recovery. So we're going to look at the study again in Chesapeake Bay that studied that period of recovery. So in the 70s, in Chesapeake Bay, there was one of the highest recorded levels of DDT. Um, and actually, DDE is the compound it turns into, which ends up in the eggs. So some of the highest concentrations ever measured were in Chesapeake Bay. Mm. And the, there was very few eagles there by the end of the 70s. Uh, but the, those chemical uh, did actually get out of the ecosystem relatively quickly once they stopped putting them in. Mm. And so around after the time that um, DDT was banned, they started studying the populations. And so they did this by flying planes around Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> so, and they would survey the eagles by plane two times each spring. So like early in the spring and later in the spring. Mm-hmm. And they'd fly like a single engine Cessna plane at 100 meters off the ground. So like 300 feet off the ground. <laughs> Jeez. So like once I started thinking about it, like that's nuts. They did this every year for 20 years. Yeah. And so they're so close that they would fly around, they would spot nests up in the tree and then they'd fly around and they could tell if it was active or not. And then for most of the later spring flights, they could even count the number of chicks that were in the nest from the plane. What? They're getting really up close and personal. Yeah. How many eagles did they swallow in the engines? (laughs) I I wondered if like there was a risk of, you know, killing eagles while trying to study their numbers. I don't know, but, but it's a pretty cool uh, method. Um, And so they could get really detailed um, data on the number of eagles and how successful the nests were. And so they did this between 1977 and 2001 across that time. In uh, 1977, there was 73 nests, and in 2001, there was 600. Oh, wow. So so it went from 73 to 600. So it was a a steady growth rate that entire time. That's successful. Yeah, and that was uh, about, by 2001, it returned to the the numbers pre-1930, so basically pre-large-scale DDT use. Nice, good work. And yeah, and from that data, they could also see that the chicks... Um, that survived per nest went up a lot. And also the percentage of successful nests also went up a great deal as well. So all metrics of reproduction were increasing during that time. Yeah. Awesome. 
So now that that's done, then we can disband the EPA and should be all good, right? <laughs> if the EPA was only for protecting bald eagles, yes. <laughs> and yeah, this this recovery was actually in many ways faster than expected. And as we mentioned before, it seems like development of all their nesting habitat is probably the biggest threat in Chesapeake Bay now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're still doing good. But you know, even with that concern in mind, there there is another study that found that their nesting success appears to be similar in more suburban areas as more wild areas. Mm-hmm. So they prefer if they have the choice to nest away from people. But it seems as though they can rear chicks fine in you know, in and around people. Right. So that's good too. That's cool. And I, this is totally anecdotal, but from my experiences, they don't need to be like that far from people to be having like to, to have a happy nesting site. Like mm-hmm. I know in Seward park in Seattle, there are tons of eagles and I assume they're probably nesting in there and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's a, it's a big park. It's a big chunk of like natural land, but there's houses, you know, just down the street, big, you know, yeah. dense residential neighborhood. And I have a similar experience. When here in Florida, I live next to a cemetery and there was a bald eagle nest. Like right in downtown Florida, there's a bald eagle nest in the cemetery. Sweet. I don't know if they were doing good, but they were there. I would like to have a bald eagle nest uh over my burial site. <laughs> Never mind. Scratch that. <laughs> <laughs> you you want to have a uh, fish carcasses rain down on your tombstone. <laughs> yeah. That's all I ask. Yeah. It's just, I'm a simple man. There's no eagles to do it for me. Then you have to do it by hand. <laughs> I don't want flowers. I want fish carcasses. <laughs> so what was seen in Chesapeake Bay was reflective of what was seen all across the country. So by 2009, there were about 140,000 bald eagles in the U.S. So in 30 years, they went from endangered with a few hundred to hundreds of thousands and in 2000, um, 2007, I believe, they were actually removed from the endangered species list completely, completely delisted. Wow. And that is an incredibly rare thing. So I, I crunched the numbers on all the species that are listed mm-hmm. in the Endangered Species Act. Yeah. And only 2% of species that have ever been listed have been removed because of recovery. Oh, wild. And a more common reason for being removed is going extinct. Yeah. So it's an amazing, I mean, it's rare, but it's a, it's a great, you know, reason for celebration totally. when a species actually gets removed completely. Yeah. That's what, that's what it's supposed to do. Right. They must have had a pizza party at least when that, <laughs> when that was reached. I hope so. I mean, it's some, you know, there's gotta be a little bit of partying happening at the EPA Yeah. <laughs> right. or, or I don't even know if the EPA is the agency that that uh, oversees the Endangered Species Act. Yeah. Some I, agencies are celebrating. Right. Someone somewhere is opening champagne. I think it's, you know, it, the idea of delisting things can sometimes be a reason for concern. I know there's been a lot of talk about delisting wolves in Yellowstone mm-hmm. in other areas, because as soon as things get delisted, then people can start hunting them. Mm-hmm. And so if if environmentalists think they're not ready to be delisted, Actually, having something delisted can be bad, right? Because that's like, well, they're just going to get back on the list. But right. eagles aren't that case at all. Like they're truly recovered, and I think probably the delisting was pretty anticlimactic in many ways because it's like, well, they're everywhere and they're really abundant, and delisting it is not really. I guess it's not like a single thing that happened at a moment. It's just like, well, we obviously don't need this anymore. So. Right. Totally. It's not like they, the election night and the results come in. It's just like. They're just like, well, there's eagles all over the place. We should probably, and also, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not like, uh, I mean, I don't know if you have a, a, a bald eagle hunting segment in this plan, but, um, you know, it's, I imagine that you can't kill bald eagles regardless of whether or not they're listed or not because they're right. birds of prey. Yeah. yeah. Birds of prey and the, um, the migratory bird act is, is basically protects all birds that aren't explicitly listed as game birds. Right. That's good. I mean. There's lots of birds killed for lots of reasons, and that act isn't super strong, but at least on paper, killing birds is not allowed. Right, but it might open up like if there's a a nest or something or people want to develop some land that might be like sensitive habitat or something, then that might kind of remove that option of protection. 
Well, that's what's so powerful about the Endangered Species Act is because it becomes illegal to do anything that harms them. Right. So that area in Chesapeake Bay, there, you know, while they were still listed, there was probably a ton of areas that it wasn't even possible to consider developing. And now, they, I don't know, maybe they could. So Right. So maybe the developers are the ones that had the pizza party. <laughs> maybe, yeah. They're like, okay, yeah, we're maybe. buying these giant swaths of land and bulldozing them and building some uh, ball pits and condos and I don't know what developers <laughs> like ball to, pits. <laughs> you know, it's a, you, attached you, to you the McDonald's like... or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Three million acres of land were lost to ball pits this year. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, man, I'm not going to, you know, try and pretend like I can get in the mind of a developer, you know? <laughs> Who knows? It's just what I imagine that, <laughs> that they would do with the land. I don't know why Paul Fitz got me. <laughs> so I only have one one final thing, which is about the oldest ever recorded bald eagle. Mm. So this was uh, has the unceremonious name of bald eagle number 62903142. So it had that number because it was part of a study. Like, I don't know how else you would know how old a bald eagle is if you didn't capture it and mark it in some way. Right. But this bald eagle was actually hatched as part of a captive rearing program. Oh, okay. Which um, tends to happen when you have an endangered species. Mm -hmm. So this was reared um, in Minnesota, and then they brought it to um, a park in New York a national wildlife refuge and it i assume it was um it was uh ankle banded mm-hmm. yeah, um leg band i don't think they call them ankle bands and birds leg band uh yeah bands i don't know band yeah bands so it has a unique identifying mark on it and it was known for a long time cuz it had just been observed and then uh, so it was banded it was hatched in 1977 in the midst of the big problems with bald eagles is when it was born. Mm-hmm. And it lived to 2015, long after the species was delisted. Oh, wow. Um, so it was 38 years old. Wow. Yeah. That's and incredible. so it's kind of amazing that the entire recovery of a species occurred over the lifetime of one eagle. One individual experienced the whole the whole spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, that is wild. Uh, so yeah, it's 38 years old um, and actually got hit by a car. Mm. It was probably feeding on roadkill. Um, got hit by a car. Bummer. So who knows? Maybe it could have lived longer. Maybe it was on its last legs or something. But yeah, it became the roadkill. <laughs> yeah, probably another eagle started feeding on it. <laughs> well, that's all I got. Oh, Any, uh, you're going to end so, uh, on the on the roadkill death of the <laughs> oldest eagle. <laughs> it's funny because I put that at the end in my head. I was like, it was a fun story of the <laughs> the, oldest. the oldest eagle, but I sort of forgot that it ends with it dying. Yeah, you should have started with the death so you could then like, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> maybe maybe we should end by coming up with a name, like a real proper name for the old. Like someone has had to have had a normal name for this eagle, right? The articles I saw didn't have one. I yeah. mean, I think maybe, you know, it was known. Like, I think even in the community that it lived, there were people that knew it. And I'm sure they didn't call it Eagle 629-03142. Right. Like, you've done field work in research. Like, have you ever used a 17-digit number to refer to something in the field before? It's true, yeah. I, uh, maybe because it's like a nationwide program, they they need more elaborate numbers. Right, right. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone gave it a name. So given its background of Minnesota, it lived in New York's Montezuma National Wildlife Refuge and was born in 1977. Male so or female? I, I thought it um, was a male. Okay. Um, but, you know, eagles aren't sexually dimorphic. Oh, here it says, a male, yeah. Okay. So any names, any... any uh, I mean, glorious names coming to mind b- based on the fact that we're both big Neil Young fans. Uh, Zuma. Yeah, there you go. 70s Neil Young record. 70s. What is the record Zuma came out in 1977? It's close. But yeah. And that's got an eagle on the cover, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I think he does. It's some kind of big bird on there. OK, I'm going to I'm going to take to un- <laughs> unnamed search engine here. Released in 75. 75. It's totally got a large bird of prey on the cover there. Yeah, it does. All right, Zuma. Okay.
congratulations to Zuma for making it to a ripe old age of 38. Yeah, cool. Any other uh, life lessons or um, things of inspiration that come out of learning about bald eagles? I think that the the coolest lesson is, to me, it's like this combination of how the the bald eagle is an important bird to the United States because it's the mm-hmm. nation's bird. So it's like people have a connection to eagles, you know, they have mm-hmm. like an emotional connection and they have like this symbolism. So it's like, mm. there's no way that America would let the bald eagle go extinct. So there's, you know, there's this effort to protect them and to, you know, make sure that they're not going to all get poisoned and that, you know, people change, you know, government organizations come together and, and change the, these chemicals that are being used to kill them and, and make sure there's yeah. their habitat is around and, you know, they, they save the species and it's kind of like, it's awesome, but it also, it's like, I, you just wish that there was that much, like just use that as inspiration to how you think about every single species, whether it's a cool, yeah. fun, exciting, big bird, or if it's some yeah. little weird bug or a, some fish that you've never seen before or something. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, I mean, in some ways they got lucky and that the ability to recover them was comparatively simple compared to a lot of environmental problems. Right. Like we didn't destroy all of their habitat. All we had to do is basically ban that chemical. It just was like an, you know, DuPont or 3M or whatever company was making a lot of money off of it was really the only barrier mm-hmm. and, and then done. And so, you know, even other animals that may be just as exciting and charismatic normally don't have solutions that are that simple. Right. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, you're totally right. Like so many species may have just as simple of solutions, but there's just not the the will to do it Mm -hmm. because it doesn't appear on our coins. Right. The outrage would not be there if it just sort of vanished. Yeah. It's like Kirtland's warbler is just as threatened, if not more, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, have you ever heard of the Kirtland's warbler? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I mean, it only lives in Michigan, and and it, the solution to saving that bird is, in some ways, just as simple. We know exactly what habitat it needs, and they've created that habitat in some areas, and they could do that at a lot much larger scale, but there's just not like the economic will to do it. So. Yeah. It's sort of inching along with the few habitats that we maintain. Right. Um, and most most in, um, threatened and endangered species is because of habitat loss, right. which is typically a harder fix. Totally. And eagles, bald eagles have the lucky case that, you know, their habitats, you know, they, they live around water and they do okay around us. So, you know, I think many other species that were in the same case could still be super threatened and on the brink of extinction and still are. So it was, it was a lucky break that right. <laughs> bald, that our national symbol was uh, comparatively easy to recover. Right. Otherwise it would have just been like, well, we can find another bird, right? <laughs> I guess, I guess let's uh, switch over to Turkey. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually. So this is a similar um, or re- very related tidbit that I recently learned um, since I've been living in California now for the last eight months. Um, just learned that the state animal of California is the California grizzly, which, which is, is no longer extant in California. Yeah, so exactly. So there are no grizzlies in California because they were all hunted to extinction. Um, yeah, and so I guess it's kind of that that case of like, even if it's even if it's politically and important and culturally important, it's like still throw it up on the flag and still have pictures right. of and stuff. But you're like, oh, you, it's not that you didn't know that it doesn't actually exist anymore. Like, you, you don't know. You don't care. You don't even think about it. Yeah, Just you're right. It's on the flag. And, and that's the type of case where, like, they need certain habitat. And it's hard to, you know, preserve big enough chunks of habitat that can support bears. And they can tend to have conflicts with people as well. And people like to hunt them. Right. So it's pretty rough. Yeah, totally. Yeah. See, we tried to make it more light at the end and then failed again. <laughs> hey, man, <laughs> sometimes that's just how the world works. <laughs> Talking about any anything environmental, it's hard to keep it uh, 
lighthearted for too long. Yeah, totally. Well, I think that's it. I think one thing I wanted to mention is that uh, I try to keep all the references together as I'm uh, putting things together. So on the notes for the podcast and everywhere where I can put it, it's on YouTube and other places. I put the links to all the references. So if by chance anyone wants to read all the various things that I read to get all these facts, you can go look at that. Nice. And uh, yeah, it's not, uh, podcast is now on a couple platforms. I learned that like you can't put it on Spotify until you have five episodes and mm. there's some sort of Apple bureaucracy that I'm dealing with. So it might be a while for those, but it's on um, Google and we're putting it on YouTube and those are the main ones. Nice. You can get a couple extra episodes out if you do like a teaser, you know, one minute teaser thing and like a... <laughs> Yeah. You know, like a couple bouncer uh, pieces. Yeah. I mean, we could. I mean, uh, it would be nice to have it on Spotify. That's maybe one of the broader ones. Yeah. I don't know what people listen to, but I have switched to listening to podcasts on Spotify, which I experience works well for me. All right. Sweet. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It was informative and enjoyable. Good. Educational. Got, got some laughs. There was a comment on our YouTube post of someone that said, that other dude. Uh, that other dude says, "Yeah," and hmm, just every time that I would have. <laughs> <laughs> just the collective hmm. <laughs> so I think that's a compliment. <laughs> it's at least not a full-on insult. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I'll start gathering facts for the next episode, and uh, we'll see y'all next time. Look forward to it.